Amen. Good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word today. We're working our way through the first first few chapters of the book of Acts in this season, and today we're at chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those, day, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor or Nicanor, however you want to pronounce it, Timon, but no Pumbaa, this is what I miss about not having a second service. You know, I get to test the jokes first service, yeah, okay. Come on, that's a great movie. It took me all week to come up with that. Yeah, all right. Back to the Word of God, not my inadequacy. Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Father God, may you honor the reading of your words today with hearing, with understanding, and Lord, today with encouragement. Move in us and among us like you moved in those first Christians, Lord. A passion of faith, a devotion to serve us, a depth of love for one another. Lord, that is what we crave, that is what we desire, that is what we need, that is what our community needs, that is what our country needs, this is what our world needs. Lord, thank you for calling us into your kingdom, your kingdom among the kingdoms of this world so that we can infiltrate and influence. Lord, bring your will to bear in the ways of this world. Lord, help us see ourselves to be on mission, even here in the five cities. As always, Lord, God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for your spirit to work, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up, as the necessity of his mission is expounded, Lord, and we are encouraged to live our lives more fully for him. Lord, I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit among us as a church family, those who are gathered here in this place in these moments for your spirit to work mightily, to stir our hearts, deeper faith and deeper action. Lord, for those who are watching right now online, I pray for your spirit to to be with them as well. And Lord, those who will watch at a later date, at at a time already ordained by you, unknown to them, when they will encounter your word. Lord, I'm eager to hear the stories of the work of your spirit in those lives as well. And it's all these things we pray with great eagerness to hear from you this day, Lord God. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son. Oh, Father God, that we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
And a very special welcome to those who are joining with us online today. I want to say a very special welcome to Lorraine, uh, who is uh, just a little bit uh, banged up this week and not able to be with us. Hi, Lorraine. We miss you. Don't worry. Uh, Lorraine was scheduled to do announcements today. I don't think she's just ditching or playing hooky. But just in case you are, we know where you live and we will find you. Anyway, hope you recover soon. Looking forward to you being back with us. And to all the others joining with us, remember you can participate in today's service by texting in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. We look forward to hearing from you and look forward to the opportunity to pray with you as well. Well, the great evangelist Billy Graham, who led millions to faith in Christ, um, received, as you can imagine, received just millions of letters from people all around the world. And one of those letters he received many years ago was asking his advice, seeking his great wisdom and great his counsel on how to find the perfect church. Billy Graham simply replied this way. He said, if you happen to find the perfect church, whatever you do, don't go there. Don't join it. Because the instant you do, it will cease to be perfect. (laughs) There is no perfect church. We're a testimony to that. I hang out with the pastors of the five cities every month. We have our next monthly gathering here this coming Wednesday. I can assure you, they are imperfect men who pastor imperfect churches. That's the greatness of the grace and the glory of God. We're all imperfect, but we're all brought together. We like to think perhaps a little bit too, um, with kind of rose-colored glasses, that the, that the first Christians, those who were so close to, to Jesus and the apostles, that they had it all together. They had it all figured out. Everything was perfect and everything was wonderful. It was just all, you know, peace and love and, and, and joy. Once again, the Word of God quashes that illusion. The first church had just as many struggles and obstacles as we do because it consisted of imperfect people, even those who were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Today we come to the second major internal crisis for the young church. This church is probably only perhaps a couple of years old, is facing a huge crisis. The first crisis we looked at a couple weeks ago Everybody was very generous, and there was people selling land and property. They were bringing their money, the proceeds they were giving to the apostles, saying, give this to anyone who is in need. We want nobody to be needy. We want everybody to be taken care of. And there was great generosity, and there was just an overwhelming sense of joy of bringing that kind of help to people. But there was one couple. There was one couple who sold a piece of property for a certain amount, and then they told the apostles, they 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 publicized that they sold the property for a different, lesser amount, and they kept money back. It was not an issue of them keeping the money back, some of the money for themselves. Peter says that's not the issue. The issue is that you lied to God. And that first internal crisis was dealt with by God himself. God killed them. Very quick, very harsh. That gets people's attention, gets everybody on board right away. But that was, it was because they lied to God. It was not because they lied to the, to, the, to the apostles or to the church. They lied to God, so God dealt with it. That was the first internal crisis. Will there be sin in the camp? Will duplicity and dishonesty be allowed? The second issue, though, 
The second issue God leaves to the apostles to figure out. They have a problem that could potentially derail the entire mission of the church and destroy the witness of them as the people of Jesus. You see, up until this point, the church was marked by unity and harmony. Luke points that out. The believers were so overwhelmed with this message of the love of God for us in Christ that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we could be forgiven so that we could be given new life, so that we could be adopted into the family of God as brothers and sisters. That message, so radical, so overwhelming, so freeing, created a sense of joy and community and camaraderie. And the early church was just overwhelmed with the joy of that salvation and being a new people together. They were marked by grace-driven generosity. All of a sudden, when, when, you are, when you are in a world where death holds no meaning anymore, no fear, the, the fullness of life that Jesus brings has come into you in such an overwhelming way, what are you going to do? Well, the Bible says, freely you, have been, freely you have received, freely give. And that's what the first Christians did. They gave of their stuff, their, 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 their treasure, their possessions, They gave it away so that others could be blessed, especially those in need. And there is just as much joy, if not more, in giving than there is in receiving. The church was marked by daily participation of what I like to call the core four. These are the four basic things that every Christian should involve in their lives every day. It may be a little bit impractical for some of us, but it's something so important to aspire to. Scriptures say that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they heard from the apostles about Jesus. They spent time in the Word. They spent time with the Word in Jesus. The apostles' teaching to fellowship. The importance of being connected. Not just having coffee, but, but dealing with life stuff together being there for one another. That's what fellowship is, the breaking of bread. They had meals together. And in the midst of the meal, they would pause and they would celebrate communion. They would take bread and they would take juice to honor the sacrifice of Jesus, the victory of Jesus. And then they would pray together. Prayer was what fueled the early church. And this led to exponential growth. Not just additional growth, but exponential growth. Started with 120. And then on the the day of Pentecost, there was 3,000 who responded and were baptized. Just a few weeks later, the number of Christians was 5,000 men plus women and children. Then after that, Luke just abandons numbers altogether. And he just starts saying, great numbers or many Men and women were coming to faith daily. The church grew exponentially. And with great growth comes great logistical challenges, right? Organizational structures and systems. The last hundred plus years have been the golden age of business management. And there are so many wonderful 
tools and techniques and philosophies and all of these wonderful things that have been very helpful and have, that have maximized efficiency. But you know what? Problems still exist. Challenges still exist. Trains still get derailed. That one fell flat as much as Pumbaa did. My goodness. You see, stuff happens. Anytime you have people together, there's going to be challenges. And the early church, church faced a pretty significant problem. This is probably about two years into the first church. We don't know the timeline exactly, but there had been great growth. The, the number of Christians now numbered in the thousands, probably between fifteen to 20,000 or more people were Christians in the city of Jerusalem. The apostles... Twelve men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, worked around the clock to teach, to preach, to heal, to pastor, to shepherd, to organize, to administrate. And they were at their absolute limits. You see, the church had grown originally just from the original Jewish Christians, the, the, the Jews of the Jews, the, the ones who, had, who are most oriented their daily lives around the Judaistic practices and the Judaistic faith. But the church had begun to grow, it began to reach different people groups. And there was a, the, the second group they reached were Jews who didn't really live like Jews. They, they were Jewish ethnically. They were Jews racially. They had Jewish blood in their systems. But the way they lived their lives, they were part of the culture at large. And this is where the biggest challenge came. They were Jews, but not really. Because they talked differently, and they dressed differently, and they looked differently, and they embraced some of the customs of the culture. And there was a large group of this category of people who became Christians. And so there was some, there was some dissonance in how the church related to one another. And the problem was, is that in this group, there was a large number of widows. And one of the greatest things that the early church did was the early church, one of their number one priorities was taking care of widows. And there was food delivered daily to those widows who were in need. Widowhood, especially in the first century and actually most of ancient history, widowhood was almost a certain death sentence or it was certainly a sentence to a life of oppression and poverty. Fortunately, Christianity corrected a lot of that over the centuries. And in this first church, there was a significant number of these widows who were being overlooked, who were being bypassed, who were being missed. The administrative and the logistical challenges was causing a problem and people were suffering. And we know that this group, widows, are so important to the heart of God. Jesus' younger half-brother James writes in his epistle, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's not just about personal piety. It's about how you are loving those who are oppressed and neglected, the, the, the misfits, the outcasts, the overlooked of society, especially orphans and widows. I like to think that 
James wrote those words just a few years after this experience in the book of Acts. See, James was one of the leaders of the church. He was one of the, the, the people helped tasked with pastoring the fledgling church. And he knew that this was just such a huge issue so early in the beginning that the widows must be taken care of. These Hellenistic Jews, as I said, were, they were Jews ethnically. But they had adopted the, the customs and the ways of, of, of everyday Greco-Roman society. They had integrated rather than remained separate and distinct. They spoke Greek instead of Hebrew or Aramaic. So they had a different language. Archaeologists have found a huge number of tombs and ossuaries, which are like little burial boxes of bones. Um, they found huge numbers of these all over Jerusalem from this time period in, in the, the years, the decades before and after, uh, of, of the names of so many Jewish women who had Greek names who were there buried in the city. And so what they surmised is that these these these. Jews who integrated into Greek society probably lived in other places of the empire, but upon the death of their spouses or as they got older, they relocated back to Jerusalem because they wanted to be buried in the land of their forefathers. They, they wanted to be buried on, on sacred land, the promised land. There's such a large number. But because they had integrated, because they had adopted, because they had adapted, because they had compromised with the culture. The Jews who had remained pure, the Jews who had kept their Jewish names and kept their language, kept their customs, kept their dress, kept their daily rituals, and didn't compromise, there was animosity towards those who did. Not that we could imagine any way today that someone who doesn't necessarily live up to our standards or our customs that we may look down on them. The church has always had difficulties because the church has always consisted of people. But these widows were overlooked, and it was a problem. They began to complain. Thank God they did. Thank God they didn't just say, you know what? I'm upset. I'm mad. I'm being neglected. I'm being overlooked. I'm going to go find a different church. Not that there was a lot of options back then. There was one church. And as a pastor, I am not, I am not opening up the door saying, you know what? Feel free to complain. Get enough of that as it is. No, I'm not opening up the door. But when there is a need, when there is an issue, when there is a crisis, leadership needs to know so that it can be addressed, so that it can be corrected, so that misunderstandings can become understandings. So the apostles receive word that a significant group is being neglected, an important group, a, a group close to the heart of God, a, a group that is so vital to fulfilling the mission of Jesus is now being overlooked and ostracized. So they call a meeting. They call the first congregational meeting in church history. Now, that's quite a task if everybody was there. The church probably numbered around 20,000 people at this time. 
So it's unlikely that, the, as Luke says, every single Christian in the city was called together. Now, they could have been. They could have met at the temple. The temple was ginormous, 37-plus acres. It would have been able to house that many people. The, the temple, as I said, employed 20,000 priests alone. It was plenty big. But it's most likely that the apostles called together all of those who were fellow Grecian Jews, fellow Hellenists, because after all, they were the ones most able to solve the problem and fix the problem. This meeting still probably numbered in the uh, very high hundreds to low thousands. It's a lot of people. The issue was this. The apostles needed to, well, they needed to delegate. They needed to prioritize. And this passage we come to today has historically been used to create a very unnecessary division, kind of an idea of hierarchy within ministry in the church and within the kingdom, a differentiation between the spiritual and the physical. Very sad. It's very unfortunate. It's very unbiblical. Because, see, the basic point is this. Every Christian is a minister. Minister means to minister to. It means to serve. It doesn't mean just to preach, just to teach. It means you minister to the needs of people. You administer God's grace in its various forms. The emphasis is always on serving. And in the kingdom of God, there is not to be a hierarchy. The word, the English word deacon, is a transliteration. It's not a translation of the Greek word diakonos, which simply means servant. So there's the, there's the noun, servant, and then there's the verb, to serve. Both originate the word deacon. And this is to be the mindset of every follower of Jesus. We are servants of Jesus, regardless of the role, regardless of, of office or title or position. Everyone is a servant of Jesus Back in the Gospel of Mark, we read this. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12, the disciples, and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. We are to serve. And some serve by leading and some lead by serving. The apostles, the apostles were unique. They were, they were called by Jesus. They were commissioned by Jesus specifically and specially as eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were the ones primarily, not exclusively, but primarily given the power of the Holy Spirit to work amazing miracles and healings. As the apostles taught, they were the ones privileged to carry the stories of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the remembering the ministry of Jesus. And they were the ones who passed it on to others. As such, their testimony and their teaching serves as the foundation of the church. As we come down to the modern day, we see that modern pastor teachers as elders in the church are the heirs of the apostles in terms of church leadership. Now, this next part I need to be very, very clear on. 
not in terms of authority, but in terms of responsibility. You see, the, 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 the apostles were a select group of 12 men given a very special task and a very special calling. They were the foundation of the church, but their time was limited. The apostles, big A, were the ones who were the witnesses of Jesus, and they were the ones upon which the, the church was built because it was their testimony. The apostles, large A, yes, did send out apostles, small A, missionaries, emissaries, representatives, Prophets, evangelists who would spread the news of Jesus. But we see in the, in, in the book of Ephesians, this is the, the categories that the Apostle Paul lists. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God has given every position of authority, responsibility for the purpose of building up those who will serve, serving Jesus. If you'll bear with me for about two minutes, I have a soapbox. It's an imaginary soapbox, so just go with that. This passage is so important because we've got to understand that that, that phraseology, the, 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 the preachers or the pastors and the teachers, it's one category. It is a single position. It's, it's not two. You will hear some people today claim to have the five-fold gift of ministry. They claim to be an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher. Let me, let me say this. This is, as my old, one of my old uh, New Testament professors used to say, it's a chihuahua barking at a great Dane when he would go against one of the great theologians of ancient history. So I'm a chihuahua barking at a great Dane. Because some of the people who claim to have the fivefold ministry, they have big ministries, big names. They've got, they're on TV. They got great hair. They have the perfect smile, all that kind of stuff. I don't have any of that. But what I do have is this. I had two years of Greek in Bible college. I can do basic Greek grammar. Those who claim to have the fivefold gift of ministry do not have the basics of the Greek grammar down. It's one category linguistically. So anybody who says they have the five-fold gift of ministry, don't listen to them. It's the same as someone who says they're teaching from the book of Revelations. As soon as they say Revelations, change the channel or close the book. It's the revelation. One simple thing. Yes, I may be nitpicking a little bit. But the problem is, is that the point of all pastoral leadership, spiritual leadership, leadership in the church is never about title, position, power, prestige, personal platforms, or anything else. It is about serving. It is about serving Jesus by serving others. Those of us who are called to lead, we are called to serve. And that's how we lead. We serve
At this time, there was no category in the church for deacons. There was the apostles. And then there was a, a, a larger subset of people who helped them and aided them and assisted them. They did so without titles. They, they did so without kind of some of the official recognition because Luke records none of it. But eventually those positions and those titles would appear. What began here, the, 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 the diakonoi, the serving, turned into the diakonos, the, the servers who then became the servants. And that did become a position within church leadership. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, to the, to the, to the overseers, to the elders and to the deacons of the church. Those who administrate, oversee, protect, those who preach, those who teach, those who lead, those who organize, those who shepherd, those who serve Jesus by serving his people. These would be the positions of servant leadership. The entire concept of servant leadership, by the way, which is extremely popular in business management circles nowadays, originates in only one place at one time in history but with one source, Jesus. Servant leadership. And this is a time for servant leadership in the first church. The apostles needed help, so they had to, they had to delegate. They had to set their priorities so they ask for those who were most impacted in this ministry need to select leaders. And they did. They selected seven men. But the qualifications were really interesting. It wasn't, hey, just give us seven warm bodies who can show up, right? It was seven men full of wisdom and of the Holy Spirit. All seven, by the way, were men with Greek names. Most of them were Hellenists, although one of them was a Gentile. Their ministry included so much more than being waiters. They didn't just deliver physical food. They delivered spiritual food as well. And from this group, as the apostles delegated and spread out some of their leadership responsibilities these men would have a huge influence. We'll, read, we'll find out about one of them next week. But then in two weeks, we find out about a guy named Philip. See, Jesus' commission was that the gospel needed to go from Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, the region, to Samaria, the neighboring country, and then to the ends of the earth. For the first two to three years or so of the church, the church only stayed in Jerusalem and Judea, it wasn't until Philip, the second of the seven, went to Samaria and preached to the Samaritans and told them about Jesus. They would initiate the next phase of the Great Commission, these seven, or at least Philip would. So the seven men were commissioned to ministry by the apostles, praying over them and laying hands on them a long history of a symbolic empowering to ministry. Laying on of hands is done as you stand over them and, and as those candidates kneel, 
Kneeling is a symbol of humility, humbling, lowering, serving. So the laying on of hands is indicative of those who are commissioned to serve. They prayed over them. But as I said, it wasn't just physical food they were taking to the Greek widows. They were taking spiritual food as well. We know from the following chapter, chapter 7, that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was an absolutely brilliant theologian. He was well-versed in the Scriptures. We know that Philip was an exceptionally effective evangelist because he led potentially hundreds, if not thousands, to faith in Jesus. Luke simply concludes this story by saying, not, not that all the needs of the widows were taken, taken, taken care of, but that the word of God spread rapidly. What had already been happening exponentially was now happening, happening rapidly. More and more, even Jewish priests were coming to faith. What could have brought disunity, disintegration, disparagement to the church created an opportunity for even greater unity and even greater witness. Because it all comes down to this. As all of us who are Christians serve Jesus in whatever capacity that he has called us to, we only have one way to serve, and that is by serving in love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's the command. So how can we put this into practice? It's go time for the church, and it's go time for us. So first, we must be careful not to exclude those not like us in the church. Life is a lot easier when everybody looks like you and sounds like you, talks like you, smells like you, drives the same cars as you, those kinds of things. But that's not what the church was called to be. The church was called to be diverse, not just diverse for diversity's sake, diverse because humanity is diverse. And it's not just a color thing. It's not just an economic thing. It's, it's, it's all of those things that can so potentially divide us need to be overcome in Jesus. We are one in Christ. So as a church, let us make sure that we're doing a good job of welcoming and interacting with and engaging those who are not necessarily exactly like us. And in a church like Oak Park, it's easy because we're a weird group, because we're an eclectic group. Yeah, eclectic is the best word I have for the church. Second of all is this. If you know someone in the church in need, do something about it. Then let the leadership know. <laughs> if it's a problem you can't tackle, well then yes, come to leadership for help. But ministry is not just the responsibility of the pastors or the elders or those on staff. Every Christian is a minister, and that simply means to serve, to serve in any way you can. So if you, need some, if you know someone in need, see what you can do to help, and then bring others along if you need more help. 
Lastly is this. Never see service as menial. Pursue serving Jesus, not procuring titles, positions, power, or authority. Jesus said, the first will be last, the last will be first. If anyone who wants to be, anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of God must be last and must be the servant of all. That is the heartbeat of serving Jesus. And that's what we are called to do. The great news is that you are not here on accident. You are not a part of Oak Park by your own choice or even by random happenstance. You are here because, as the Scriptures say, the Spirit arranges the parts of the body as He sees fit. You are here because you need us. You are here because we need you. Everyone brings gifts, talents, experiences, stories, testimonies, strengths, and weaknesses that the Holy Spirit is all bringing together in a beautiful tapestry or a beautiful puzzle that he is working out. So connect, give, grow, serve, receive, love. And we do so all for the glory of Jesus. I'd like to have Tay and the, the guys come back on the stage as we prepare for a time of communion. Communion is we celebrate what, what we have in common. We have in common the saving work of Jesus at the cross and at the resurrection. If everyone could please stand at this time as we prepare to, to sing, as we prepare to reflect, worship, and meditate. Communion is what calls us to action. It is what binds us together. It's what bonds us together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It will, it's what gives us purpose and meaning in life. Jesus died for us. He lives for us. We die for him. We live for him. Communion is where we take bread and juice. It represents the body of Jesus that took our sin on the cross. The juice represents his blood that paid for our sins and purifies us. But as we take it within ourselves, the reunion of, or the union of the, the, the juice and the bread within us represents the reunification of the body and the blood of Jesus in victory over death to give us new life.